You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Welcome to Belaboured Episode 87. Today we'll be speaking with Megan Erickson about her new book, Class War, on schools, social justice, and the privatization of childhood. But first, the news. Last week, warehouse workers at the Port of Los Angeles launched a strike to demand fair pay and better safety protections. But this wasn't just any strike. These are workers who technically aren't even employed by the warehouse they're supposedly working for. They just decided that they were fed up with poverty wages and unsafe conditions, and they weren't going to take it anymore. So they joined a growing wave of contract workers who are demanding full labor protections. They were demanding a $15 minimum wage. That's an immediate raise, so it's ahead of the $15 minimum that was just set by Los Angeles to be phased in over the next few years. And separately, they're also pursuing litigation over wage theft, and they have brought complaints before the National Labor Relations board complaining of abusive treatment by management in retaliation for their organizing efforts. And they've been heartened in part by the recent NLRB decision that we recently discussed here in Belabored, which held that a company that hires some of its staff through subcontractors can, in many cases, be held liable as employers, even if the workers are technically tied to the subcontractor and not the parent company. So in this instance, the complaints were filed against California Cartage and its staffing agency, both as joint employers. And if they prevail legally, then they will be following the landmark NLRB decision involving Browning Ferris Industries, which said that basically workers who were subcontractors at a certain recycling plant had the right to unionize as part of one collective bargaining unit with the regular employees because they were controlled by one joint employer. So... We don't know what will happen with this case, but if the warehouse workers do uh, prevail, uh, legally speaking, then they might be that much closer to securing full labor protections under the Fair Labor Standards Act, and they'll be paving the way for other workers to follow suit. So watch this space at the Port of Los Angeles. The faculty and staff at the City University of New York, including several former belabored guests, have been working without a contract since 2009. According to PSC CUNY, the union that represents 25,000 faculty and instructional staff, this makes them just about the last public employees in the state without a contract and without a raise in that time. All the while, costs at the school have been going up, a 31% increase, they say, in senior tuition since 2011, but faculty has seen none of that increase, and the state continues to cut funding from the university system. This week, they held an action to challenge new CUNY Chancellor James B. Milliken, a wake-up call outside his apartment at 8 a.m. Thursday morning, demanding that he put some effort into creating a new contract. While they note the chancellor doesn't control city or state purse strings, he does have the ability to rethink the CUNY budget's priorities. CUNY students are mostly working class, many of them students of color and immigrants. The school is accessible to those students, but when the state continues to defund it, what happens to their education? We spoke with CUNY professor and PSC CUNY member Alex Vitale on the union's struggle. Well, the most uh, sort of cynical aspect of the lack of a contract is that uh, for the last uh, five years, the state has been increasing tuition on students, 
telling them that this would go to help make the university stronger. But what's really been happening is that they've been cutting the CUNY budget and withholding pay increases from faculty and staff throughout the university. So it's essentially been, you know, a tax increase on students while the governor goes around talking about how he's keeping taxes down. By not adequately paying faculty and staff, we haven't been able to hire new people that we want. Morale is really affected. And basically, you know, students' learning conditions are our working conditions. So these two things are really linked together. We, you know, we see this, the defunding of, of public higher education going on everywhere. But right now we've got a governor and a mayor that want to be seen as, as a nationally prominent progressive. So what does it say that they still haven't come to the table and provided the funding for the university? Well, the uh, problem is primarily with the state. Uh, most of CUNY is funded by the state, and the mayor has signaled, you know, a willingness to, to put some new resources into CUNY. It's the governor who's shown a complete disinterest in trying to support public higher education. He's been, you know, at war with the K-12 teachers, and he basically, I think, just has very little interest in the value of CUNY. He and his father were both products of the parochial schools and really, I don't think, have any organic connection or allegiance to public education. I think that CUNY must be considered to be at the center of any agenda for achieving uh, racial justice in the world. And so any politician who is starving CUNY of resources you know, treating universities and its students and its uh, staff with disrespect is, by definition, standing in the way of an agenda for enhancing racial justice. That was PSC CUNY member Alex Vitale. So this week, world leaders met at the United Nations to discuss very important world affairs, but the men in suits who shook hands and made big speeches for a few days, as usual, kept women's issues on the sidelines. At the City University's Murphy Institute, a different group of world leaders met, and they focused on nothing but women because they were, for once, all women themselves. They came together for a conference called Women Leading the Global Labor Rights Movement, and at this forum, they shared stories of their pioneering campaigns to fight for fair wages, union rights, and safe working conditions. Hosted by attorney and activist Cham Toli Hook, Several women from different parts of Asia reflected on the struggles they shared in challenging multinational companies or fighting for basic rights in the household as domestic workers. In both industries, women do the bulk of the low-wage labor, and they suffer abuses ranging from sexual abuse to wage discrimination to toxic exposures at work. And they are among the most politically disenfranchised members of their communities, both inside and outside the workplace. We're going to hear a clip now from Eni Lestari. She's the chair of the International Migrants Alliance, representing Indonesia and Hong Kong. Uh, she discusses here her uh, experience as a young domestic worker 
in Hong Kong, working as a migrant Indonesian, and where she suffered intense discrimination and poverty, as well as uh, you know, cut her teeth developing strategies for herself and her fellow workers to forge grassroots alliances with unions and civil society groups and press for greater rights at work. So let me just introduce myself. I am an Indonesian. I began working in Hong Kong as domestic workers for like 16 years ago. And the reason why I moved out from my country was because when Asia, Asia financial crisis hit Asia, it crossed a lot of economy. Indonesia is one of the most because we have high population. We have like 250 million people. And the 97, I remember exactly, it was so chaotic. A lot of factories suddenly closed down. And I have like younger siblings to support too. So I don't want them to be more in-depth because of the crisis. So I decided to take a walk outside the country, hoping that I'll get, you know, big money to go home in four years, five years, and save money, freedom from the debt. So when I went abroad, uh, everything changed. Um, the dream that I thought was very beautiful to be migrants, immigrants, was not. I was not paid. I was underpaid. I was uh, paying a lot of money to the agency. I like I don't get my pay for three or four months for the first uh, time when I work. And the employer was not very nice. Always, you know, they don't understand being a Muslim, so they always call me when I don't eat pork. Like, why don't you eat pork? This is nice. This is healthy. I don't eat pork. Do you know what Muslim is? They don't understand. So anyway, it was like tension for seven months, and I finally ran away because it was too much to even stay on. I don't have my day off only once a month. So I ran away not knowing where to go. The only thing I have is one phone mobile number in my hand. And... Uh, Luckily, it was actually the shelter for domestic workers. So I ran to the mission for migrant workers. I speak a little bit English at the time, so I was able to explain because many of the staff, not even Indonesian, they are Chinese, they are Filipino staff, you know, social worker. So it, it was the departure of my journey to understand the bigger context where I was in. Um, I realized it was not only me. In the shelter, I found Filipino Bangladeshi woman, uh, not Bangladeshi, Indian woman, the Thai, Nepali were in staying in the same shelter. So since then, it, it, I realized um, that uh, all this exploitation to domestic workers is not because of the nationality. Or, you know, it's really because the class where we are in. So since then, empowerment of migrant workers, and 99% of us are actually women, became the, the, the entry point of the liberation of myself and all, a lot of my colleagues. So um, we formed a lot of organizations. In fact, back there in Hong Kong, we run, we actually managed to unify more than 70 groups of domestic workers among Indonesians itself. Now you don't talk about other nationalities. So when we go to street for wage increase, for example, immigration reform, we will bring at least 2,000, 3,000 domestic workers go to street. And I think that actually became the 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 unified voice when the government cannot even run away. And if you know the case of Erwiana, uh, a domestic worker who were brutally abused by employees in Hong Kong, she was actually nominated by Times Magazine to be 100 most influential person in the world. We were able to pick up her case and push the uh, police to arrest the employer because she was already sent back to Indonesia. The police said, if no victim come out, we cannot arrest the employer. So we 
put that case to the rally, pressure the, the police, you can arrest the employer, use your power, go to Indonesia, investigate the victim. And we were able to do that. And it was one of the biggest victory ever since because you don't see any case like that in Asia when the victim already went back home and case was open. No way. So it, ha- it happened in Hong Kong, not because Hong Kong is always seen as the best model in Asia in terms of protection of domestic workers, why they believe themselves as the best, simply because Hong Kong is the only city who includes domestic workers in the labor code. No other countries. So we, do, we have this employment standard contract. We have a full rest day every Sunday, legally, of course, but on the grounds, you will see a lot of violation. So, but simply because all these changes happen in the town is because the strong voices of the domestic workers who never give up every Sunday, every month, if we really have to do a lot of empowerment and you know reform a lot of policies. And that's very intense engagement. And that's how our friend Erwiana was able to get justice in the first place. And that was Eni Lestari, chairperson of International Migrants Alliance. Last episode, we heard from Jonathan Knapp, the president of the Seattle Education Association, about the strike that his union was in the middle of. That week-long strike has now ended, and the union seems pretty happy with its new contract, which won some groundbreaking provisions for Seattle schools. I checked back in with Jonathan Knapp to hear more about what the union won. We managed to get language on all of our major issues that we were interested in. Of course, it's a collective bargaining process, and even with a strike, you don't always get absolutely everything you want, but we're very mm-hmm. happy with the outcome and, and you know, very happy to get uh, you know, a number of new elements in the contract that are sort of unprecedented and, yeah. uh, and, and new elements that we think help really change the landscape for collective bargaining for public sector unions, particularly educators' unions. So uh, the first thing I would talk about is we did get a, a minimum mandatory recess for elementary kids, mm-hmm. uh, and we think that's a great step forward. So we have at least 30 minutes of guaranteed recess time for elementary kids. That's part of our contract now. And uh, it doesn't preclude a school from having uh, a little bit more than that. And, right. you know, one of the things that we found is we had this in- incredible inequity of some schools having as much as 45 minutes and others having as little as 15 minutes. With recess, were you finding that the schools that had more were in generally more affluent areas? So, yes, we, you know, what we had seen, although it's not absolute, but we had seen a trend where it's more likely that uh, uh, some of the high poverty schools would have less recess. You know, not an absolute you know, across the board every single time, but definitely a trend in that regard. And then one of the other things that um, I was following and, and I think right. many other people were interested in was the discipline policies right. issue. We had proposed equity teams in each school to look at the disproportionate discipline challenges. So we obtained an agreement where uh, we would start out with 30 of our schools would create uh, equity teams, and it will be a sort of joint work between the district and us to uh, – identify which of those schools and, and, and what their equity plans are. So it will be uh, joint collaborative work with the district to, to identify the schools and identify the measures that they're going to take to work on that issue. So we think that we're pretty excited about that. You know, we wanted to maybe roll it out a little bit faster than that, but actually with, with the commitment for 30 schools, we really – that's about a third of our schools here in Seattle. We have about 100. 
we feel like that you know once we get that ball rolling it's it's going to snowball there's really no way to hold it back and and you know as long as we're doing good work and and have some good ideas out there uh in schools that are working that it's going to be adopted pretty quickly across the district and were there issues around testing that managed to make it right. to the contract so on testing there are two two major accomplishments in this new contract um one is for us to have a voice in the overall testing regime for the district for the year. So one of the problems that we had identified in, in recent years is the district had a propensity to develop or adopt new district-wide assessments mid-year with sometimes with very short notice saying, you know, well, a couple of weeks from now we're going to have you do this new pilot test that we, you know, are interested in. And, you know, that's the first teachers heard of it two weeks before it happens. And and that makes it really hard to, uh, you know, plan your year to make sure you get your units covered, uh, you know, because there's so much testing that's taking away from class time. And then to have additional assessments added at the last minute is just really onerous. So we've bargained a, a an assessments committee to work in advance of the school year to set the assessment schedule and regime for the following school year ahead of time. And then once it's determined and set in the summertime for the upcoming school year, it can't change. And then the other thing that is uh, important around uh, testing is around teacher evaluation. So we had an element in our contract uh, that um, used the state test as a student growth measure in teacher evaluation. It wasn't a direct evaluative criteria. It was a growth rating that teachers had based on student uh, test scores that applied only to the uh, teachers that taught subjects that the state test covered, that is math and English language arts, because the state tests don't cover any other topics. Yeah. And then uh, a couple of years later, the state implemented a new teacher evaluation law that required all teachers to uh, develop student growth measures, regardless of the subject they teach, Mm -hmm. So that opened the door for a much more comprehensive look at uh, student growth measures at a classroom-based level. Once the new state law was passed, our members had to do that too. And so what we uh, bargained out is the old Seattle student growth rating that only applied to the state test and to, as growth measures and only applied to teachers that taught English language arts or math. So now it's more equitable. Every every teacher has to look at student growth, and they have to come up with their student growth measures for their class, regardless of whatever they teach. Yeah. And now there's no dual system where you know some some only had to do the state requirements, and then others had to do the state requirements and this other student growth measure. Yeah, yeah. we worked really hard on getting caseload caps for our. Uh, ESAs, you know, our, our psychologists, occupational therapists, physical therapists, speech-language pathologists, audiologists, we did not have any contractual language around caseloads for them, and they just had unbelievable caseload numbers. And so we managed to bargain caseload caps and a, and a vigorous enforcement mechanism around that so that uh, really the district has is highly incentivized to make sure that we hire people. And in terms of you know, the feeling in the city after the strike. I mean, I think I saw a couple of people saying the strike could have gone on longer, that you were still getting excellent support from people. How did it feel at the end? Was it as strong as it was at the beginning? Oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, we had every indication that among our membership that they were, you know, determined and resolved. We had 
you know, we know that, uh, you know, internally there's great support and this, uh, the parent support was just overwhelming too. Just incredible stories from every picket line at every school about, uh, about parent support. Uh, you know, we had a very conservative, uh, very anti-union, uh, newspaper out here that, uh, basically sat it out. They did not get involved editorially at all, and that was sort of remarkable because they have uh, they, they have almost never passed on an opportunity yeah. to bash the union. It seemed to me, I mean, I'm across the country, of course, and I feel like the the national media is not quite as plugged into Seattle as they are to Chicago, anyway. But like yeah. the uh, lack of sort of notable teacher bashing was really. Sort of well, that's that's really because we had done some good work uh, in in the parent community and the community-based organizations to you know talk about what our issues were over the last years and reach out yeah. to them about uh, about engagement in education through the association. And I think that that paid paid dividends. It also paid dividends for us because we you know thought about a bunch of these issues like we were just talking about and and the, really the the impact on students that 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 these issues have. And even though they're not mandatory subjects of bargaining, you know, the traditional mandatory subjects of bargaining are, you know, wages, right. benefits, and working conditions. Yeah. Uh, even though they're not those, uh, there's a tremendous resonance for uh, for parents around, you know, what are the conditions that their kids are learning in because educators' working conditions are about 99% aligned with kids' kids' learning conditions. And um not to completely avoid the issue of, of wages and benefits because it is important and I know it's been getting much more expensive pretty quickly to live in Seattle. So um, I did want to ask about that issue as well. Yeah, well, and and the the really satisfying part of this has been that you know, the public has recognized, parents have recognized that, uh, you know, pay and benefits for teachers is a student right. issue. I mean, you know, if you can't attract and retain great educators, you're not going to have the education system that you want. Seattle is one of the uh, fastest growing cities with one of the, the fastest increasing cost of living in the country. Right. And, uh, you know, if we can't afford to live here, it's hard to know, you know, how we keep great teachers here uh, in Seattle working with kids every day. I think, that, you know, they should also know that, you know, we're out here in Washington State, we're really, you know, focused on, on a funding challenge at the legislature right, yeah. you know we have mm -hmm. we have this uh, lawsuit that has uh, found that the, oh, right. the by the supreme court that the legislature is in contempt for not amply funding public education and the takeaway for us i think is that you know educators are really involved in in their institution and are going to be advocates for it and i think that politically going forward that you know legislators need to understand how passionate our members are around you know, creating a public education system in this state that uh, that does what it, it it's designed to do and what it needs to do for kids. And right now, the legislature is in contempt. They are not doing what they need to do. Uh, they clearly have to come up with revenues to uh, support public education. And you know, that's where all eyes are turning now that our our strike is over and our contract is settled. I think all eyes are turning towards Olympia about you know what are the next steps in the legislature. That was Jonathan Knapp of the Seattle Education Association. And around the country, we've covered the increasing movement against privatization and neoliberal education reform on this show, from teacher strikes to the opt-out movement to test refusals by educators to the growth of universal pre-K and the demand for better child care and family policies. 
Today's guest has some things to say all about all of those issues and then some. Megan Erickson is an editor at Jacobin and a career educator who drew on her experience teaching in public and private schools with children before they've entered kindergarten all the way up to high school to write Class War, a book that challenges not just our education system, but the very foundations of capitalist society. Megan joins us after a long day at school. Thanks, Megan. What inspired you as an educator to write about your experiences, and who are you hoping to reach by publishing your perspective in a book form? So um, I've been working in the public schools and in the private schools in New York City for the past four years, and I've seen basically parents of every different class background from every different part of the city are facing the same sort of competitive pressure. Um, and my question in starting this book was, is this something that I'm imagining? Is this, you know, I think I generally see people as acting rationally, right? And you have to assume that um, everyone's not just crazy or responding to a real material pressure. Um, and so what I sort of initially started researching with the book was um, how this kind of intense competitive pressure had come about. So one of my student teaching placements, which I write about in the book, was at Stuyvesant. Um, and obviously there, you know, it's the top 99 percentile um, of children that get in through testing on just one exam. But then once they get there, there's still continued pressure to get into Ivy League schools. But that's not the only place that I saw this kind of environment, you know, all over everywhere in all of the public schools and the private schools even. I really sort of started to notice a wave of essays that was coming out at the same time. Um, there was one in New York Magazine where that, that really stood out where they interviewed a lot of families around the city who said, frankly, I wish that I hadn't had children or, you know, I love my kids, but I hate being a parent. Um, and the writer Corinne Meyer, who's actually French, came out with a book about why you shouldn't have kids. There was an article in The Guardian called Kids Will Ruin Your Life and Destroy the Planet. <laughs> so I'm not a parent myself, but I was listening to all of these parents um, say these things and talk about what a sort of um, big pressure it is and, and the the need to sort of curate this experience um, for your children of childhood instead of to just live childhood. And I thought, where is that coming from? Because at the time I was working in a preschool and running an after-school program when I started the book. Um, I'm a social studies teacher now in sixth grade in a public school. Um, but at the time, it just didn't really mesh with what I saw in terms of taking care of children, the everyday joys of childhood um, when you're allowed to be teaching and working and being a student in a really child-centered environment like early childhood, you know, which kind of precedes the pressure cooker of K-12 education. So that kind of goes to what what I was hoping in terms of the audience for this book. So there have been many, many great books written on um, K-12 education and the way that the education system is changing in terms of policy. Um, Jean Anion, Pauline Littman, there are some great books out there, but what I hope to add to the conversation was to update it for, um, you know, sort of the post-NCLB era, but also to really bring a fuller perspective, you know, going from early childhood all the way through 
K through 12 education and into college and adulthood too. So there's like the final chapter of the book is on motherhood and fatherhood and parenting a child, raising a child, um, because I really see this as something that it's going on in a policy level in the American public schools. I think it's part of a larger competitive ethos in American society that affects people from birth to death, really. It affects the nuclear family. Um, and I, I think it's impossible to really talk about the changes in the structure of our schools without talking about the changes in the structure of our nuclear families and um, all of the cultural expectations on parents. So the last part of, of my response to your question is, you know, so I'm sitting there sort of thinking, like, am I crazy? Is everyone going crazy? Like, what's happening to people? Why Why is there all of this really negative conversation around childhood that something that I see really positive and a joyful thing? It should be about playing and learning, right? Which are, there's nothing more fun to me as a teacher and there was nothing more fun to me as a kid. Um, and so, so I found when I was researching that, in fact, there has been increased spending and increased time from all families on what is called child enrichment goods and services. So, like, after-school classes, soccer practice, taking kids on trips to museums and things. And that in itself is not necessarily a bad thing at all. Um, it's a great thing. But, but so spending has jumped for all families, but particularly for those in the top quintiles um, since the 80s. And I also found that the first use of the word in the media, helicopter parent, was in 1989. And I thought that was really, really interesting because it parallels sort of the rise of all of this sort of standards and accountability talk as well as increasing income stratification in families. So it seemed to me, the conclusion that I drew from that and that I write about in the book is that the competitive economic pressures that families were facing in the job market and what have you in, impacted the way that they parented their children and what they felt that they needed to provide for their children. That's and I think that's also influenced the way we um, educate children in the school system as well. That just reminded me, which I did not think of weirdly when reading the book, that my parents went to the Better Baby Institute when I was a baby, which was um, 1980. So, <laughs> oh my goodness, they were early adopters. But so you're, the subtitle of the book is The Privatization of Childhood. And I think your first line is one of the best in, ever. I've just, the truth about baby shoes bit. So tell us about the the way childhood has been privatized and how that begins with the designer baby shoes and, and goes all the way up to places like Stuyvesant. Yeah, sure. So, so um, yeah, so in that introduction, I write about um, the $10 billion a year industry in baby gadgets that the United States now has, which never existed before the 90s. Um, and, and so, you know, the bugless stroller craze that started with Sex in the City, I think Miranda on the show has a baby. And then, but, but the fact, the idea that, you know, everybody has to have these luxury goods. And I found research, so it's not just sort of the upper classes um, that this impacts. It's not, it's not, you know, I think people going far back in history have wanted to um, sort of show their class by dressing their kids a certain way. But I think what's really unique, again, about today is 
the the social stratification and the income and wealth stratification that's going on in the country. And um, so I, I came upon a lot of research about how this has impacted parents' attitudes in the middle classes and working classes. And a huge percentage of parents said that they felt that they weren't giving their child what they needed because they couldn't afford these items. And and so it starts very early. And then another so another way that I researched the book was um, by visiting private schools and public schools and speaking to teachers around. New York City as well. The book takes New York City as a focal point because so many of the changes that are going on in the whole country are, this is sort of ground zero for them. A lot of the education reformers um, who go on to top positions in the federal government come from here and from Chicago. um, And so it's kind of a microcosm of the rest of the country. But anyway, going back to what I was saying about um, the baby items and how that leads into school. So those same parents are looking at the Daltons and expensive Montessori schools, and these schools cost, you know, $30,000, $40,000 a year, and they're desperate to get in, and they're writing notes to people using connections. Um, another thing that I found was that one of the top um, choices for uh, letters of introduction into pre- private preschools with Bill Clinton, <laughs> which I think is insane. But but you know what? You do what you can for your kid, and I think that's what makes looking at these this type of spending and this, these types of cultural attitudes, it's one element of what makes it so interesting because whatever your values are, you put your money where your mouth is, basically. You you really live your values here, um, It's and it kind of tests any sort of ideological commitments you have, which a lot of people have written about, you know, believing strongly in the idea of public schools, but feeling that they had to send their kids to a private school to get um, a well-rounded holistic education. So one of the things that really surprised me when I toured Dalton, for example, I expected when I walked into the school, there would be like marble floors and chandeliers and the kids would just be eating tofu for lunch. But it was actually, it looked a lot like, you know, I went to a very mediocre rural public school growing up. It looked like what we would call the traditional model of education, people who went to school pre no child left behind in that, like, there was art, there was um, recess, there was all of all of this built into the curriculum. So they were teaching a very holistic liberal arts curriculum. The kids got music regularly from an early age. They had immersion um, Spanish classes, whereas in the public schools, um, in contrast, where people are not paying 30000 or $40,000 to send their kids, their you know, time spent on tested subjects has increased dramatically since the passage of NCLB, NCLB being No Child Left Behind. It was a bipartisan bill. You know, I think most people have heard of it at this point, but it's the federal bill that funds our schools. Um, so it was a reauthorization of EFEA from the Johnson administration. So since the passage of NCLB, which sort of brought the ideology of standards and accountability into schools and introduced the idea of AYP, the adequate yearly progress, um, meaning that schools need to, there's there's a focus more on outcomes and results, so schools need to document that they're um, meeting certain standards and what percentage of students are doing that. 
which all in theory sounds great, but in practice it's led to um, educations that are really focused on paper and pencil tests and um, teaching critical thinking skills in a way that is very, very reductive. And in a way, I can speak to this really um, personally. I find this in the school that I'm working in now all the time. So the idea of differentiation is kind of a trend in education right now. It's a great thing. It's about meeting the needs of every single learner, you know, as opposed to sort of teacher-directed instruction that kids have to follow along. But what I have found is that so much of the way it's being implemented in public schools in New York City is about documenting constantly and finding, um, so, so it translates into, like, how do you do that for 35 kids in a class? Right. Um, class sizes in New York City keep increasing and increasing, which, by the way, is another big difference between public schools and private schools. In New York City, you'll get 35, 40 kids in a class, including, you know, like an English a class of English language learners, whereas in private schools, class sizes tend to be between like 10 and 20 max for high school. Um, I've heard of pre-K classes where there are 20, 24 kids, which is crazy. And it really makes it difficult to teach to every child. But because the, you know, the powers that be, the administrators are looking for um, evidence of differentiation and the whole idea is about teachers proving that they're doing this instead of trusting that teachers are on the side of kids and, and want to do what they're doing well, um, the focus tends to be on documentation. So a lot of the ways, that the, the big way that this is implemented is through the use of, um, like, different worksheets. So, you know, there will be, like, a triangle or a circle group, and the triangle group will have gotten maybe, like, a 90% on the pretest, whereas um, the circle group got, like, a 70 and so on. And so it becomes about saying, look, I have these worksheets that have different levels on them, and I'm meeting the need the different students that way. Whereas in the past, I've used differentiation in, again, in a very like child-centered, um, progressive way. It's much more holistic. Kids are human beings. They're whole human beings, right? So looking at the whole child and seeing what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are and using that when you're determining um, their group placement you know, group by group, sending the group work that they're doing as students, um, varying, varying it up. So they have some individual work, they have group time. But really, I'm seeing less and less of these, like, 90-minute periods and more and more of the 45-minute periods, sort of get them in, get them out, get as much knowledge into their heads as you can. You know, I think it's really the industrial classroom model. And it's hard to fight that on an individual level as a classroom teacher, which is another big um, sort of takeaway from my book and something I felt really strongly about conveying is that this is a systemic problem and it's something that can be only addressed in a systemic way. So I think a lot of one of, you know, the U.S. has a great history of trying to address structural problems, structural injustices and inequalities, and sort of rectify those through the school system, which is the public school system, which is really, even at its its liberal origins, the dream of the common school was one of uh, the great equalizer. And so 
not only are we putting the burden then on children and teachers to make up for all of the failings of our society to deal with huge problems um, that are economic and material realities, but we're not even funding the schools to be able to do that. And, and that's really why we're seeing these two parallel systems. I've heard it referred to as an apartheid system, and I think that's wholly appropriate. I myself am a product of the New York City public education system, sort of pre-NCLB, but having seen both, I I went to a hippie elementary school and ended up in one of the magnet schools. So um, just in terms of those, that separation you see, you you pointed out this tension between these kind of two visions of childhood development that have emerged, um, kind of the new wave of education Mm -hmm. thinking. You talk about, on the one hand, there's this kind of libertarian approach that's sort of anti-structure, and in some cases kind of anti-state, as is embodied in the sort of homeschooling movement. And then on the other end of the progressive spectrum, I guess, um, you see people who are, you know, wary of education reform, but at the same time, they genuinely believe in this idea of the public school as an institution. Can you talk about, you know, the the intentions that kind of shape both of those visions and maybe what we can draw from both as sort of progressive uh, thinkers about education? Yes. On the one hand, there's this sort of anarchistic vision of, you know, the Paul Goodman idea that the city should be our, our schools, right? And and I think, you know, it sounds lovely in theory. I think um, the whole idea of teachers as authority figures that are, you know, intrinsically trying to dominate children is harmful and inaccurate. And I think it's kind of a romantic notion that stems back literally to romanticism about sort of the wild, you know, innocent child, um, which I write about in my book, versus the authoritarian sort of jaded adult. And I think that on the one hand, as sort of defenders of public education, it's really essential that um, anyone advocating for public schools is clear that American education is not perfect. And um, throughout history, you know, schools have, have consistently served as places, especially for working class kids and students of color, where where kids are, you know, a lot of a lot of the um, spirit is intentionally kind of beaten out of them. Um, sometimes it's even take, taken physical form, not just metaphorical form. You know, the school to prison pipeline. Um, metal detectors in schools. There, there's generally a punitive atmosphere in, in many schools today. Corporal punishment is still used across the country. So I think this idea that schools are jails is understandable, and um, it's something that we need to reckon with, again, as, as activists. But on the other hand, they are also one of our last remaining public spaces in, in the age of neoliberalism. And I think it's really important to be fighting for those spaces. So there was a line that I read in one of Paul Goodman's books, I can't remember which, but where he says, burn down the public schools. Um, and, and I think a lot of my thinking follows Lisa Delpit, who's an African-American educator, much more contemporary to our time. She's still alive and um, working in schools, um, where she says, you know what, that's, that, that works for some people, for those who kind of grow up with the mainstream cultural attitudes that will be embraced um, by 
you know, managers into adulthood. But there's a reason why why schools are there, um, and and it's really for teachers to take the responsibility and the role to not devalue any student's culture or where they're coming from, but at the same time to say, the system is probably not working for you, and here's how you cheat it. That's one of my favorite lines from, I think, her most most recent book that she says is, is sort of the best perspective for an educator to kind of take students' hands, guide them, and say, this is how you cheat this system. And and I also, that's sort of a perspective that aligns with my own in that I think that, so um, so the Marxist, the Marxist sociologist, Bolz and Gintis, um wrote what I think is kind of probably the essential book on school and capitalism called Schooling Under Capitalism appropriately. Um, and so they did a lot of research into the way that attitudes are passed down in schools. This was written in the 70s, but I think it's still really critical reading and, and totally relevant today about the ways that attitudes for different workers are passed down to different groups of students in in different sections um, through schools. So tracking, which refers to like the practice of having honors classes versus um, you know, merit, it's sometimes called, or gen ed, and then ICT or special ed classes. Generally, you'll see, I found this experientially, and it's backed in with research as well, this corresponds to class. So, like, for example, a couple of nights ago, I had a back-to-school night, and, um, you know, for my honors class, the room was packed with parents. For my ICT and gen ed classes, it wasn't because, and I reached out to parents and called them and said, you know, here's what we covered and talked to them about why they couldn't come because they were working night shift or, you know, so a lot of it, a lot of it corresponds to the types of jobs that you have, your ability to be present as a parent. And actually I've seen that some people's feedback to my book has been like, well, what about parents? Parents really need to be helping their kids navigate the system. Well, that's really easy to say when you come home and you have the time to do that. But in particular, jobs like domestic work and um, we're sort of seeing proletarianization of all jobs, but particularly those sort of back-breaking, devalued jobs, um, you know, are, are kind of sucking the life out of workers and eking the last drop of productivity from them and so they're spending all their time you know making ends meet and that really affects the ability to be present but the idea of scrolling under capitalism is that these um, sort of trapping systems into honors gen ed and so on um, correspond to different types of work that students are being indoctrinated to as laborers um, as future laborers I should say um, and so, you know, honors kids are sort of promoted on like the college track and, and given the liberal arts education, you'll see more often vocational training um, done with kids in the sort of like lower achievers or whatever euphemistic way the school puts it. So I think all of that is still relevant. However, I think and what I add in this book is that human beings aren't that mechanistic, right? And 
And I think that's sort of the superstructure, if you will, of our schools. And it's one of the operational functions of schooling under capitalism. But as public spaces, as spaces where kids and teachers and parents are spending their days. And, you know, like my school and many schools around the city sort of community centers well into the evenings. So our school sort of always buzzing with activity. So as these spaces for people to meet and, you know, they're free, which is is pretty radical, it doesn't require a parent usually the wife staying home and, and homeschooling the child. They are places where kids are introduced to other kids and to the idea of being pulled out of the daydream. I think as public spaces, public schools are worth preserving and fighting for. So you note in the book also that school funding still ends up being weirdly privatized because it's tied to private property through property taxes. Yeah. And that like the solutions that are often proposed for this kind of inequality, rather than just equitably funding the schools, are, you know, busing students outside their districts or, or these school choice plans. Yeah. And you talk a little bit about how those sort of miss the point and why there still is all this resistance to equitably funding schools, even when like judges like in New York and Washington State have said you need to equitably fund the schools. Yeah, well, I mean, I think in terms of the resistance, that's something that we see historically with, you know, white people protesting public housing projects being erected. Um, that's that's something that historically people have just been in the streets resistant to. It's a huge part of New York City history. A lot of middle-class Queens families, many of them white, Jewish families, white, comma, have have really fought against integration since the 50s and 60s. But on the other hand, I think the idea, as you said, what I write in the book is the idea of busing students as a way to end inequality and, and to equalize society puts, again, the burden on the shoulders of students and on schools to correct the wrongs that we see um, in the world. And so... One of the um, pieces of information that I uncovered when I was researching and that was really staggering to me, and I think that we all need to like, like you can't repeat it enough, and I think it needs to be reckoned with, is that the U.S. is one of only three countries where in the OECD sort of development index countries. Um, Turkey is another, and I forget the third um, but it's one of only three of many, many countries where children who are poor or low income get less resources in school than children from high income families. And that is a result, as you mentioned, of the fact that the U.S. school system is uniquely decentralized. So it is uniquely unlike schools in Sweden or other countries where there's much more federal funding for the schools. The U.S. schools only about 8 to 10% of funding is provided federally, and the, all of the rest is um, coming from state and local budgets, which are generally extracted through property taxes. So a lot of reformers bring up this idea of, like, but the U.S. is spending so much money on the schools, therefore money must not matter. What, it, what matters are managerial reforms, innovation. Yes, the U.S. spends huge amounts of money on on schools, but just like healthcare, the issue is not the amount of money, it's who it's going to. And so much more of that 
funding is going to rich and middle class kids and not to poor kids. Schools today are expected to bear the burden of being a sort of de facto social safety net in America. But again, they're not given the adequate resources to do so. And even if they were, um, sort of the flawed idea behind all of this rests on, again, the idea that schools can um, meritocratically give kids opportunities. Um, and that's that's where you see a lot of these people like Arne Duncan using language like this is the civil rights issue of our time. So what that leaves out, it I find it strikingly similar to the language used with welfare mothers, right? Welfare queens in the 80s where, you know, chi- children are idealized because they're sort of blank slates and they haven't committed the crime of being poor yet, um, whereas their parents are villainized. I think that any sort of social movement that really seeks to change schools needs to seek to change to society because the inconvenient truth for reformers is that kids grow up into adults, right? So, um, you know, I, I think one of the reasons for focusing so much on equalizing schools is that kids are innocent and it's sort of politically easy um, for people to argue for these things, um, for kids to have the opportunity, but no one wants to say, this is not an equal country. No one has equal opportunity, you know, um, and, and, and parents deserve a shot at that too. What are we saying when, when kids are, how can we expect a kid to learn when, you know, the same as, or have the same opportunities as, you know, a kid in Jamaica, New York City versus a kid in Scarsdale when um, the kid in Jamaica City, their parents, again, are like working three low-paying jobs um, and really not having the time to put into making, in New York City, um, every, every, um, student entering kindergarten and every student entering middle school and then every student entering high school applies just like the college college admissions application process. Um, And similar sorts of reforms have been adopted all around the country. Um, The effects of this in terms of research have been very clear. Gary Orfield, who's at the Harvard Civil Rights Project, has done a lot of great work on this. And I drew um, from his research, his colleague, Erica Frankenberg, a lot in my book and writing. So what, what research has shown is that choice has the effect not of equalizing schools, but again, you're, you're putting parents in competition um, with one another to kind of give their child the competitive edge, to give their child every advantage. And in theory, what this means is that people who have the ability to go to a seminar on what school is the right one for their child, um, people who who have the time and the, the political and social and economic power to advocate for their kids end up, you know, choosing schools that are right for them and, and that are that are better, frankly. Um, and, and they end up in those schools. And, and there's also the issue of charter schools um, being known to skin students instead of control over their admissions process. They tend to discriminate against kids with special needs 
um, they end up being much more likely, much less likely to have their proportional share of low-income families than public schools do. Um, all of which goes back to what I brought up earlier about um, public schools really being a space where, you know, the political power of of all parents, not just the richest parents or the parents with the most time in a community, um, is exerted to react against corporate reformers and to respond and to really create a struggle and a movement against it. And and also going back to, to the previous question that you asked about Goodman and should we burn down the schools, um, I think a lot of that ends up in 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 reality as much as the idea may be appealing it ends up with really richer parents having the option to homeschool their child um, and having the material means to do so or, um, you know, being able to send their kids to Sudbury Valley School. Um, but these remain pretty isolated experiences in in the educational system of our country, of the United States. The vast, vast majority of students are educated in the public school system. It's more students now than ever that are being educated in charters because there's so much power and money behind this movement of charter schools. Um, but it's still, it's something like 80 or 90% of kids still go to the public schools in the United States. And I think it's really our responsibility as human beings, frankly, to change the collective experience of schooling and what that means. Um, and radicalize it um, and socialize it and and not just to ensure that our own individual kids have alternatives. Just speaking about that that sort of um, idea of activism within the schools, I think one of the interesting phenomena that's come up recently is, um, you know, the opt-out uh, movement and how that's kind of both elucidated some of the class lines in um, the public education system as well as yeah. helped parents organize across you know, a lot of different demographic groups in a way, um, um, especially as it's grown in yeah. New York City, I've noticed. Just based on what you've been observing over the past year, um, with this debate over the ethics of opt-out and whether the parents participating in it, in it are, 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 are selfish, as some might say, or anti-public you know, public school, or that they're undermining standards for maybe less fortunate folks who really do rely on some of those standardized tests to see how their schools are doing. Um, how do you navigate the ethical debates around that? And I guess maybe the second part of the question would be, like, what do you think an ethical parent should do? It's really hard for me to comment on what an ethical parent should do because, again, I think how can you tell a parent to not do what's best for their kid, right? I, I, I sympathize and empathize with parents all over the income spectrum and who, and it's, and it's always really sort of hard to say what the ethical thing to do is. Um, I think that it's it's very dependent on context um and and very dependent on what exactly your class is and where exactly you're coming from and what exactly your political power is i think again it's really hard to address these questions and and possibly even um not really fair to address these questions on an individual or possible on an individual level um a classroom teacher has 
such limited ability to fight back against the overall um, administrative um, atmosphere in the school. Um, I've seen that time and again at schools that I've worked in, at schools that I've volunteered in, and I've always really tried to find schools where there is an ethos of, of kind of respecting what teachers do and respecting what kids do and what kids know when they come in the classroom. I think it's really clear that standardized tests are not doing that. Um, I think the opt-out movement um, issue is such a complex one because as you say and as many people have pointed out, um, most of the districts where this is going on, they're, they're wealthier districts. I talked to a teacher who said, I will opt my own kid out, and I believe in the movement against standardized testing as a movement, but on an individual level for me as a teacher, it's always like, uh, of course, the kid with the highest grades in the class, their parent is the one who wants to opt them out. Because high grades on standardized tests often correlate to socioeconomic status more than they correlate to, you know, what a student is really capable of. And that's what it all comes down to is that a school where kids are valued for the whole picture is really going to serve everyone and that better. And that includes students from low-income backgrounds. That includes upper and middle-class students. There's a reason why women around the country are being arrested for quote-unquote stealing education in middle-class suburban schools, right? Right, right. This is well women who are placing their kids in the wrong dis- the so-called wrong district, right, um, in order to get their kids into a better school. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and, that, and it's been described and prosecuted as theft from the government. And, and I think it's very clear that, that what they want for their kids is to be in a school system where parents are heard um, and where parents who have social, economic, political power in the system as it is are listened to. You know, I write in the book that kids in, in lower income districts in cities, in urban areas, are being subjected to things that if this were taking place in a suburban district, there'd be freaking rioting, you know, like there would be a huge response from parents not accepting this from corporate reformers and Rahm Emanuel, the Rahm Emanuel of the world, you know, the Joel Kleins of the world, the Michael Bloomberg's. So, so there is this, there is complexity in terms of the idea that standardized tests do help, um, help assess where kids are. And I'm, to be clear, I'm not at all against assessments. Again, I do pre-tests in my classroom, um, but I make it very, very clear to the kids that um, these assessments are not high stakes. They're not anything to worry about. They're not going to be averaged into your grade, but they're also not the full picture of you as a human being and your strengths and weaknesses. I remember this one student that I had, I taught in 10th grade a couple of years ago, and it was really, really painful and interesting to me at the same time. Um, So this student was one of the sweetest students I ever met. She was sort of a natural born, what you would call a leader, um, and not in the gross, like, tacky sense, but but really, like, would help peers out and answer questions 
that anyone had. Um, and she did great in group work and, and she was just such a delightful person to be around. Um, all of her peers respected her. And then, um, I got results back from an SAT pretest and she'd scored, basically she'd gotten every question wrong except I think they give you points now for putting your name on the top of the test. Um, and it was absolutely devastating to me and of course to her. Um, and I, I think that these, this, this picture of education, this understanding of education, um, is, is going to be harmful to all students. There's a lot of educational research out there about the best ways to teach children, about how children learn. And the idea that we need to be sort of starting from scratch and basing our educational policies and revamping and reforming our systems based on best practices for management is a false one. Um, it's, it's one that is, you know, propagated by people who have zero engagement with with the people actually doing research about how children learn. So the idea that that standardized tests has a larger ethos around which we build our school system is a positive one is is wrong. Um, it's not beneficial to any kids. There's there's plenty of research on that. Um, I think in terms of opting out, there sure there have been threats from the government about withholding Title I funds. Will they follow through on that? I highly, highly doubt it. Um, and again, those the, the districts that will be affected by that, if they were to do that, are those districts where the higher income families are opting out. But again, the issue is not tests. It's not assessments. Um, I use tests in my classroom. I use a portfolio. So so that kids have the options of, um, there's a lot of choice involved in terms of choosing how you'll be evaluated on the content, but certainly kids are expected to know the content. And I feel that my responsibility as a teacher is to make sure that they know the content. You know, we're constantly um, informally assessing and checking for understanding every single day. So I think really the issue is that there's a distrust that educators are um, involved in this process, and and that distrust comes from managerial distrust in workers, um, you know, in the generally punitive atmosphere of workplaces where it's like, show us that you're doing this. The emphasis becomes on showing you know, how we're meeting standards as opposed to um, doing it in a contextual way that makes sense in the classroom and on a day-to-day basis. So I don't think that there's any conflict in terms of using tests in the classroom and making sure that all kids are getting the information that they need to be successful. Um, and and I don't think really any teacher... Um, at least none that I know who's part of like core, more, um, the rank and file caucuses, the radical caucuses of the teachers unions, um, are against that concept. Um, even though they're critical of a system that uses high stake standardized testing and high stake standardized testing only, um, as part of, a, of the larger sort of industrial model ethos that, that has taken hold of our public schools. 
Yeah, so we heard from uh, Jonathan Knapp from the Seattle Teachers Union earlier in the show, and their strike just wrapped up where they won provisions like expanded recess for kids, as well as backs on testing. What is your view, you were just talking about more in core, of the role of the teachers unions and particularly their strike power in fighting for more equitable schools? Yeah, so I think that's another really exciting thing about education and also goes back to the reason I wrote this book is that teachers are in a really unique position today um, in particular. It's a really unique historical position in that the traditional unions, the the sort of stereotypical like metal worker union focused on bread and butter issues um, generally predicated on the white male breadwinner model um, that left a lot of people out, um, women, people of color, so on. That model is dying, and the response to it has been, you know, those great documentaries, Harlan County, USA, for example, shows the mining strike in the 70s, major um, strike. So the mining strike in the 70s was very successful, um, people were able to fight back and win a lot of concessions. But on the other hand, a few years, just a few years later, Hormel just moves production to a different city, a different state. Um, and so this whole interstate competition, global competition, offshoring has really changed the way that unions work and, and what they are capable of and what their power is in society. We've all seen that. And teachers are in an interesting position because, you know, you can't really offshore kids, right? Like, if a teacher strikes, you know, we're still seeing states and and government entities are having to negotiate with them. Um, And that's a pretty unique situation to be in. So when teachers don't go to school, um, Americans lose a big source of childcare. And I think that's a really big power to have, to be able to sort of shut down production. You know, parents can't go to work. And it's a really important one in a time when that sort of older model of unionism is being destroyed. I also think that in terms of the more in core type of um, social justice unionism, or um, it has various names, it's exciting to see, but it, it actually sort of harkens back to the unions of old prior to the UFT and the AFT. And there was really this focus on bread and butter issues starting in the 60s and 70s. There's this great book called Reds at the Blackboard. Clarence Taylor, I think, is the name of the author. And he writes about the teachers' union. Um, it's called the TU, so the name was the teachers' union. And it was this group of um, radical, mostly communist educators led by Jewish women, African-American women teachers. I think the the actual head of the union was uh, male, but, you know, the, the, sort of the de facto leadership um, was these radical women educators teaching in schools. And they were out in the streets um, organizing thousands of parents for not just the rights of children in schools. That was a, found, a, a starting point for them. So they were arguing for, they were advocating for the integration of Afrocentric curriculum in schools, getting racist textbooks, openly racist textbooks out of the schools, but also for economic justice for the families and the community. And, and so 
to see that shift back to social justice unionism and organizing is a huge reason for optimism. And as you've mentioned, we're we're seeing that grow every year. So more and more students are opting out of tests, and I think that that shows the movement is becoming more and more mainstream. We're seeing kids join teachers on picket lines um, in Seattle. You know, the whole community came together in the hunger strike for diet schools and won really important concessions and, and, and very powerful victories. You know, I think it's a powerful statement of the possibilities of this kind of organizing. The great line that I think we hear all the time um, among organizers working um, with this kind of sort of radical rank and file union is that teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. And that's such a powerful way of illustrating that um, you can't attack teachers and public education without attacking students. You make a case in this book for not just better schools, but a society that values caring, which is a thing that I've heard in so many books lately from Naomi Klein's book about climate change to Anne-Marie Slaughter's book to A. Jen Poo's book about aging. Why is this idea so compelling right now and why is it so challenging to the way we live now? So I've sort of said throughout our conversation, I think it's impossible to reform schools without reforming society and vice versa. Public schools are a huge part of society. They exist within society as much as reformers, corporate sort of education reformers want to ignore that fact. That's not an appropriate basis for redistributing resources, even though I think that that's a good start and we need to be doing that. And that's why, ultimately, my book is a call for socialism, um, you know, a democratic economy that's focused on meeting human needs and not profit. Um, I think that's the only way I can see out of, of this sort of mess that we've gotten into of, of, of kids constantly being pitted against each other. Um, this, this is not in the book, but in research for another essay, I found a website for Goldman Sachs philanthropic arm of the company um, in which, you know, they send businessmen for lessons into schools. They get their picture taken with the poor kids and then, you know, they're out of there. But the language used on the website I thought was so telling. It was, you know, some kids are not having their needs met by public schools and the website copy referred to them as diamonds in the rough. And I think that's really how um, reformers view kids is like, let's use these tests to weed out the smartest kids. Um, so, so there's the conservative response, which is like, screw the poor, basically. But then there's a very liberal and dangerous um, neoliberal response, which is like, let's take these poor kids out of their communities and um, put them in Harvard, you know, based on test results, based on their performance. Um, and, and I think that's, that's correlated to our values, um, in terms of care and in terms of the way we see the goals of education. I think America has a unique perspective on childcare in that we're, we're really one of very few countries where, um, raising a child is seen as an independent family project, you know? And I think that relates to a lot of the stress that I was talking about beforehand. So our schools 
lead into our workplaces. Our kids graduate into the world. And it wouldn't be fair to refashion the school system, reform it in the more child-centered, progressive way that I'm speaking about. In fact, it would be impossible without changing the world that kids are going to graduate into. I, you know, I've said I think the movement to opt out of tests is important and is exciting and and ultimately has a lot of potential, even though it started with a very particular um, higher-income demographic. Um, but we also need to be articulating a positive vision for schooling and society beyond just rejecting corporate reform. Teachers should be speaking about the needs, not just classroom needs, but um, the needs and the rights of their students to health care, um, to to parents for paid parental leave. Um, we need to be supporting the fight for a $15 minimum wage to have sane and fair and respectful and dignified job options for kids when they graduate. We need to be, you know, hugely behind the Black Lives Matter movement, the fight for health care, the expansion of the social safety net in the United States. The reason why a lot of these conservatives bring up this idea of like, oh, kids are just babies under the progressive education model. You know, we really need to be um, indoctrinating them into the harsh realities of the world, teaching them job training, teaching them to code. Um, I think they're reacting against the idea, which is a really radical one if you think about it, that all children are unique. You know, it's every child is special. And I don't mean that in the hippy-dippy way of my child is special and I have the suburban Scarsdale bumper sticker to prove it. I mean that kids are, they're more than human capital. They're human beings and they're alive today. And, you know, they deserve to be in schools that are fun, that are enjoyable for them, where they're getting to do recess and art and hands-on projects and the things that they love to do. I think the material crisis right now in America is 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 very real. Um, the wealthiest 10% of families possess the same wealth as the bottom 90%. Class mobility is at an all-time low. 20% of kids live in poverty. As I've said, the social safety net has been gutted. And even conservative and neoliberal education um, researchers and economists like Eric Hanushuk have determined that teacher effectiveness has only a 7% impact on um, social achievement as measured by standardized tests. Um, and, and that schools and school environment have only about a 30% impact on educational outcomes. So I think it's really, really clear that um, this, is, this is an ideological project, um, a way of envisioning education, learning that extends beyond schools into the workplaces of an adult. Um, and I think a revisioning of um, what we do in schools as more play and less like the student's version of the adult's work, right? Like, students students are assigned homework, um, and it reminds me a lot of, and I'm, I'm sure it reminds me of students of, the, the way that parents take their work home from school or from work every day. So, so, you know, like homework mirrors the overwork that parents have in, um, in their lives and in, in their workplaces more leisure time for workers and more leisure time for schools, more focus on the day-to-day joys and pleasures 
um, and, and unique perspectives and values that kids bring to the classroom is, is a radical way to fight the neoliberal sort of assembly line model of an ethos of, of work and learning and production. And that was Megan Erickson talking about her new book, Class War, now out on Verso. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for Arg, I Wish I'd Written That, where we bring you our picks for the week of what we wish we had written but did not. My pick is The People's Uber by Trevor Schultz. It's on Pacific Standard Magazine. And while the title may smack of yet another vapid pan to the wonders of the digital economy, it's actually an incisive piece trying to deconstruct what the sharing economy is and how we can revamp it in order to give workers more control and more power in the workplace. So the so-called sharing economy tends to invoke a lot of different reactions from people. Generally, you either love it or hate it. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably hate it and find it terribly exploitative. But Schultz actually tries to be proactive and think about ways to restructure this sharing economy so that instead of giant corporate behemoths atomizing our work and disempowering us and making us slaves to the app, workers can actually seize control of the technology themselves and govern their own work, their own schedule, and their own working relationships. That may sound like a pretty tall order, but since frustration with the sharing economy is growing and it's becoming ever more ubiquitous. It's some interesting food for thought, and it gives us a chance to kind of step back and think about what uh, a world governed by a sharing economy might look like if workers were actually in the driver's seat. So he basically lays out some first principles that kind of combine old school unionism and cooperative principles with the aspects of technological innovation that have the potential to actually democratize workplaces. He invokes what he calls, quote, labor history's cardinal lesson, which is that in confrontation with owners, individual solutions don't work. The future of labor need not be defined solely by venture capital funded Silicon Valley ringleaders, but by countless civic stakeholders. And he proposes what he calls platform cooperatism. So instead of an app that reduces the worker's role to that of a mere software account holder who's at the mercy of both consumers and the digital algorithm all the time, Schultz proposes a business model that's based on basic rules such as co-determined work, a protective legal framework, a weekly work time of 30 to 40 hours, and protection against arbitrary mandates. And so he goes on to outline some more specific rules for digital protections in the workplace, like setting clear boundaries for when workers are logged on and off, stopping workplace surveillance, and ensuring that any cloud-based work program is constructed as open source software so that workers have maximum control and input. 
So I'm not totally sold on the viability of this model, but I think it offers an important basis for maybe some important debates that we're going to be having in the future. We can either spend all of our time lamenting the drudgery of the task rabbit economy and its myriad abuses and how exploitative Airbnb is, or we can actually try to reclaim this technology that has been used to disempower workers and start to transform it into something that workers can control maybe from the bottom up. So often these concepts are used to mask corporate hierarchies, but what if workers actually seize the machine to actually realize the principles that the Silicon Valley moguls only pay lip service to? Schultz ends with a very simple idea. To make good digital labor a reality, it is essential for like-minded people to organize and fight for basic democratic rights for workers. So while we may feel like we don't control the technology that rules our workplaces, when we do get together as real people in the real world, in real time, we might actually collectively wield a lot more power than some of our parts. This week, I'm feeling doubly arg, because not only do I wish I'd written the piece in question, but I also forgot to submit a piece to the excellent anthology that it is now a part of. Reprinted right here at Descent, Madeline Schwartz's piece, Less Work, More Time, from the Feminist Utopia Project, a forthcoming book from the Feminist Press, makes sure that our feminist utopian thinking includes the idea of freedom from work. Inspired, as we all are, by theorist and author Kathy Weeks, Schwartz argues for a universal basic income as a way to begin thinking about free time beyond the bind of wage-to-work and housework. As I've argued to you patient listeners before, we are mostly allowed to talk about wanting time off from work only to do more work, family leave to care for a child, sick days the same. Someone tweeted at me the other day that they never understood as a child why their mother took off work when they were sick, but went to work when she was sick. Demanding free time for ourselves is seen as selfish. Well, enough of that. Schwartz writes, quote, Thinking about a world with more time would entail a more theoretical shift. It would mean decentering waged work from a feminist conception of a better life. Work has been central to the second wave conception of equality, one based on getting what the men had under capitalism rather than fundamentally changing it. But work has never been liberatory for all but a few men or women, as we discussed last episode with Mia Tokamitsu. Schwartz continues, Placing work at the core of a feminist demand obscures work's problems and blinds us to life outside of it. Demanding decent conditions for the work we must do should be central to any justice project, feminism included, but it is not enough. We should be arguing for the freedom to have a life that goes beyond work for our right to our own lives, whether we want to fill them with family or creative endeavors or lying in the grass looking up at the sky. That is all for today. Thank you to Megan Erickson, Jonathan Knapp, the folks at the Murphy Institute, Alex Vitale, and to our producer, Natasha Lewis, for making us sound good. We will put links to the things we discussed today up at the Descent website. You can always tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. Send us your thoughts on feminist utopia, platform cooperatives, public schools, class war, anything else that comes to mind. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.